I think one of the key areas that we focus on is when you're starting a company from scratch and you take the product to market, how do you actually listen to the market feedback, bring that back to the company and incorporate it into the product? And it sounds so simple, but it's not that simple to execute. Welcome to the Payments Powerhouses podcast, where we discuss current trends with the movers and shakers in the fintech industry. Brought to you by 2C2P, your trusted payment solutions provider in Asia and beyond. Welcome to another episode of Payments Powerhouses. My name is Suhan and today we have Melissa Guzzi, who is the co-founder and managing partner of Arbo Ventures, a global fintech-focused VC. Melissa has more than 25 years of experience as an entrepreneur and investors with expertise in global technology innovations in Asia and Silicon Valley. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. We're glad to have you too. So we understand that you have spent the last decade focusing on fintech, big data, digital commerce, venture investments in Asia. So can we backtrack a moment to talk about what sparked your interest in venture capital? And what made you focus most of our work in Asia as well? Well, I've been doing venture capital since 2000. So it's, it's been a quite a long time. <laughs> I moved to Asia in 2007. I think my love affair of financial services started in about 2008 when I saw the innovation that was happening in and around Asia and payments particularly. And that was really the beginning of the focus on the sector. So when I speak about financial services, I mean payments areas around payments like anti-fraud, insurance, everything that touches a transaction is how we think about it. But Asia's led the way in, in innovation in financial services, whether it's how payments have been done in China with Alipay and WeChat Pay, or InsureTech and insurance as well, being able to adjudicate claims and get them settled very rapidly to real-time payments is is not the next big thing, as they like to say in the U.S. It's actually been happening here in Asia for quite some time. So that's sort of what started it. What are some of the key differences you have observed between Silicon Valley and Asia? Well, in Asia and in fintech particularly, as I said, we've led the world in innovation. And it's really, it's not about legacy because we really didn't have the legacy. It's about finding low-cost solutions that can be applied across the entire spectrum of the market. And I think the companies in Asia have been very focused on business innovation particularly, and how to make things simpler, more inclusive, and lower cost. I mean, if you take fintech in the U.S., I'm American and we do invest in the U.S. somewhat, but I mean, it's pretty outdated. I mean, the fact that people still use checks or, you know, there's really no national real-time payment system. And people talk about innovation in banks. I mean, there's been much more innovation in banks in Asia than there have been in the U.S. I guess the environment is really different as well. Right, between the two markets. The environment's very different. And I think, you know, we will continue to lead the world here in innovation around fintech. True. And I'm just curious, what was your first venture capital check or investment you have signed or put in? First one ever? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's actually hard to remember. <laughs> but I think it was a spin out of a university that I did back in 2001. But it's been a while and it's been a lot of companies. Yeah, been a lot of innovation since then, right? Correct. <laughs> so I read that you described Abo has um, fintech focus and globally connected. How do you come up with these guiding principles for your venture work? 
Can you elaborate further on that? Well, for us, it's about knowing and seeing what's in the world today. And I think uh, we've been really fortunate to have our roots and our foundation here in Asia where we've seen so much innovation. But then it's about the connectivity to the rest of the world and watching innovation, whether it's in the Middle East or even in the U.S., and being able to connect the companies. We'd like to say we sit between great investors in the fund as well as great entrepreneurs, and we're helping them build companies one building block at a time. It's really making sure that we're there to help the startups build their dream. And also, I think what's really important is when we do see something somewhere else, it's giving them the ideas or the information so they have visibility across the world of what's happening. And that's why we like to say globally connected. What prompted you to start Arbo, your own firm? Was it a natural progression or was it something that you always wanted to, but just waiting for the right moment? I don't think it was actually a natural progression. I was pretty happy where I was. But what became apparent to me was when I was living in Asia and doing deals for a firm in Silicon Valley, that there was just a big disconnect. And you can't necessarily invest the same way you do in Silicon Valley in Asia. You learn to be a good investor. You look for good principles. But overlaying the same sort of metrics does not make sense. And so it became evident every time I had to get back on a plane to go back to Silicon Valley to try to explain a deal that there was just a disconnect. And that's when I made the decision to really start Arbor and have the foundation here versus trying to explain to people halfway around the world why Asia was different and why we were progressing very differently than the U.S. How is Arbor now? Like, how many offices do you have? Why your coverage? Could you share with our listeners? So a third of the portfolio is in Asia, ex-China. So focused on Southeast Asia, Japan. A third of the portfolio is in the Middle East. We now have an office in Dubai. And a third of the portfolio is in the US. I guess you have quite an extensive range of network where basically your companies and your portfolio could access and leverage whenever relevant. Absolutely. That's exactly what we do. And that's part of the culture of the firm. So I guess payment is obviously one of the key sectors listed on your website. Can you talk through the lens of Arbo, like how the payments industry have evolved and what are some of the key trends you are excited about as well? Look, the payments has evolved tremendously, everything from real-time payments. I remember I had just moved from Hong Kong to Singapore at that point, and I was rushing home to go pay someone who was doing work at the apartment. And they said, no, you don't need to come. You can use pay now. And I was like, what's pay now? And I realized, okay, I just need his mobile phone number and I can pay anyone. And it settles immediately. And I was like, wow, this is very, very convenient. This is great. I think, you know, so from everything from real-time payments to how do you include alternative payments and for payment processing, which is something that 2C2P was really successful at, to buy now, pay later, or at least the category of buy now, pay later, like we did in Japan with Payday, to Tabby in the Middle East, which is is similar to Payday, which is buy now, pay later for that part of the world. I think one of the areas that interests us most right now is the intersection of insurance and payments. So we backed a small company in Singapore called Kinetic, which is rather than merchants putting up collateral to the payment processors, you can actually insure that. And we also see this intersection in the U.S., especially in a sector like healthcare, there's been a real disconnect with payments and settlement for services. And so what excites us is that intersection between insurance and payments. We think there's a lot to do there. Let me give you a big theme, which is I think we'll move to a world of CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, which 
will make new payment rails, new settlement systems. I think the next 10, 15 years, we're going to see just enormous innovation around payments, especially as CBDCs continue to take off. Which market or region do you think is going to lead the cause for CBDC from your point of view and your experience? Well, I think Asia will. I think this experiment done at the Bank of International Settlement related to oil, settlement for oil is just the beginning. And once we see hedging contracts without the dollar, that will start to facilitate and you'll see it then for other commodities and then into the enterprise and then maybe, you know, to the consumer. But that will very much change how payments are done. I mean, both from a a timing perspective. I mean, today, when you send an international wire, you still have no idea where that wire is while it's crossing the pond, you know, the ocean and the pond. In this day and age, that's not to have visibility. The opaqueness of the system is still very outdated. So I think the next 10 years are going to be even more exciting in payments than what we've seen historically. Yeah, I can relate some of the stuff you talk about payments and healthcare because I spent a few years working in the US as well. Basically, I moved from Singapore to New York. And then I realized, hmm, why is everything so opaque? Like I visit a healthcare center and I don't know how much it costs. And I asked the counter, how much does it cost for this specialist checkup? And they say, no, we'll send you the bill. But I say, how much? <laughs> I have no idea. So I had to wait for weeks to get the bill. And like, oh, okay, it's a few hundred bucks. Yeah. Well, then you'll get another bill for another doctor or another service and they're not related. So we back Nomi Health uh, to do that. And again... If I hadn't seen what happened in China, where you could go to the doctor, snap a copy of the bill, upload it, and the claim was adjudicated and the, the money was back in your wallet the next day, I would never have thought it was possible in the US. But you know, we saw what was possible in Asia and then said, okay, we saw a company that was doing this and we're like, yeah, we got to back them. And it's with high conviction. Yeah. So talking about investments, what's your process to identify good leaders to invest in? What are the qualities to look out for? So we embarked on a project a couple of years ago called Project Rockstar. We hired a a psychologist to help us evaluate the personality traits and the characteristics of a successful versus unsuccessful entrepreneur. And it's kind of been a dream of mine to say, okay, what makes an entrepreneur so special and different from, let's say, a general manager of a company? And we've done a lot of work around this. And Yes, I mean, some of it seems so obvious. Somebody who's got good judgment and reason, somebody who can act decisively, someone who can build a team, someone who can raise money. I think one of the key areas that we focus on is when you're starting a company from scratch and you take the product to market, how do you actually listen to the market feedback, bring that back to the company and incorporate it into the product? And it sounds so simple, but it's not that simple to execute. So one of the key things is how open-minded is the CEO to input from the market? So we focus a lot around the product development process, how they think about product development, what's failed, what's worked, and really then how the CEO interacts with his team. And we have a question list we've developed with the help of the psychologist to ask during meetings to try to extract some of these personality traits. One of the funny things that we learned during this process is There's a question that you would think, do you go on vacation to the same place every year? If the answer is yes, you're probably not that startup CEO. And I thought that was kind of interesting as we went through the exercise. One other question that's a little bit unusual, which is, do you talk about work all the time? And I think what you learn is to be emotionally balanced is actually also important. 
But you have to be gritty. You have to have perseverance. Failure is not an option. And you have to find a way to succeed. And our best entrepreneurs are that way. So to this day, do you still use those questions as part of your interaction with potential companies and founders? Yes, we do. I will say this. It's helped us from making some mistakes because part of human bias is saying, oh, I really like this product, but overlooking the team. And so we use this to make sure that we don't have so much bias about the product that we're overlooking something critical on the team. Have you heard of other firms doing the similar approach as well? It's something that's unique to your team. No, I think that it, this has become a trend in the in Silicon Valley, particularly that people are using more and more data. I think we're probably one of the few firms that actually has retained a psychologist to help us. I think it's been quite useful for us and interesting. Yeah, because it gives you the different insights to the persona and the way of thinking as well, right? And it's quite amazing to know that just from a few simple questions, that is not work-related, but it gives you so much insight. People have to be mission-driven, not money-driven. I'll give you a really good example. If somebody came into the office, so this is before the psychologist and said, Melissa, we're raising our Series A and we're going to go public and Goldman Sachs is going to take us public. That usually meant there was not a second meeting, right? I always just took it as that. But after working with a psychologist, I realized it's because they were not mission-driven. Deep down, the real reason we wouldn't back them or have another meeting was they were money-driven. They weren't mission-driven. And I find the best CEOs are mission-driven to achieve something more than just the financial reward that comes with it. It's true. Because when the going gets tough, it's the belief and the vision that takes you through. It's the belief and vision that takes you. And if you always have one foot that says, I'll go get another job, I'll go to work for McKinsey, or I'll go to Goldman or somewhere else, you're not truly committed in the heart. And to be a really successful entrepreneur, you have to be more than committed in the heart because it is a really long, tough journey to success. Yeah. It's like, if you know that you have some safety net at the back, it's not really 100%. The best entrepreneurs will fight the fight. So... You've been in fintech for quite some time. I'd love to understand if there's any fintech trend from, let's say, five to 10 years ago that you have underestimated. Have that occurred to you? Oh, yeah, always. I mean, I think being introspective about what works, what did you miss? I would say there's only one company that I actually wish I had done. One, because I also respect the entrepreneur. But two, I am now a customer. And there's a good reason why we didn't do the investment. But I think I wish I had done it just because I really like the product a lot today, <laughs> personally. But I think for the most part, sometimes in venture, it's also timing. I think, you know, clearly there's uh, been some markets that have sort of gone up quickly, but then retreated. And so, you know, perhaps we could have done those and exited before they retreated. But those things are always hard to time. So, you know, I'm not a market timer. I'm an investor in companies long term. And so I, I like to think that for the most part, we haven't missed many trends. We've missed a couple of companies, but I don't think we've missed the trend. And I guess speaking of trends or emerging technology, you mentioned CBDC. What's your take on crypto? I think crypto is going to go through some volatility as more and more regulation comes out after FTX and Genesis and Gemini. Uh, I think you know probably regulation will swing to the more conservative side which will be a little bit of a setback for the coins themselves. But I do think we have to keep in mind that it's an evolution of maturation. 
And all the infrastructure that's been built for crypto is going to be used down the road, whether it's for CBDCs or DeFi, capital markets. It will happen. It may evolve as something new. It may evolve as it becomes more robust, more sturdy. But I like to separate out the infrastructure from the coins because I do think the infrastructure will have, you know, a lasting impact on architecture of financial services. But the coins themselves, as governments issue CBDCs, the real question is what role do the coins play? And that's hard to answer today. Yeah, there are so many coins in the market right now. And also with the regulations, like mentioned in the US and Europe as well, there's a lot of volatility and uncertainty. So just for context, I was actually working in a crypto startup before 2C2P. I spent two years from 2018 to 2020 with a crypto payments company, traveling around, trying to create crypto use cases. And it's quite fascinating to see how the sentiment has evolved from 2017 to today. And it's interesting that right now, I think more companies are open, but because of more involvement as well, regulators are coming in to see what they can do to mitigate the risk. The infrastructure play that, that you mentioned is interesting because some of the innovations actually consist really from the crypto projects itself. Whether they stay, whether they evolve, it remains to be seen. Whether coins survive, I don't know. But it's a very exciting space, I feel. But there's, there's a lot of speculation. I think a lot of speculation on the coins, but Let's think about this. If we didn't have crypto, we didn't have the coins, the infrastructure would not have been built. To me, it's the test case for the infrastructure for DeFi and for CBDCs. There's always a good part to innovation. It may not happen in its first you know, incarnation, but the reincarnation of it is going to be something exciting. Yeah, I agree. And I guess another hot topic now that we're coming to see in the market is AI. Have you used ChatGPT and what's your take on it? Yeah, I play with ChatGPT. I will admit, I like testing it out. I think it's here to stay. It's just a question of, you know, governments are already regulating the use of ChatGPT, but the innovation itself won't disappear. I do think it will increase fraud. I'm pretty excited about, you know, looking at investments in that space. I think it's accurate. Well, You know, it depends on the subject matter. It's a little bit high level. You try to re-ask questions to get to more details, but it's fun. Like, it's actually fun. Yeah. Like sometimes if you doubt its response, you could ask it again. And then sometimes you say, okay, I'm sorry. This is the wrong one. This is the right one. And I think in some ways it helps help many people in terms of writing as well. I know my wife has used it in some of her marketing collaterals to give her some inspiration to kickstart. So... In some ways, I think it's really cool and it remains to be seen how companies or schools or students take advantage of this technology. I look at it as the modern day encyclopedia, maybe. I mean, that's exactly what you do. Sometimes you ask a question, you get inspiration on a thought. I was asking it about cyber insurance. Like, I was just playing around with it on some of our topics that we're looking at to see what it came out of it. But I mean, sometimes it's very well written and it's useful and it's fun to play with. And you mentioned about fraud, right? So do you think it's something to continue to watch out for from an ethical standpoint? Because there's a lot of discussion around how AI could impact the direction it's taking. I think specifically with ChatGP is that it's going to get harder and harder to tell. Well, fraudsters are getting smarter and smarter. Let's face it, right? They're pretty good. They innovate constantly. They're like a startup in that sense. They're always innovating. They're smart, hardworking. They work 24-7. There's no hours for fraudsters. And I think ChatGP will be another tool they'll use to engage 
And so what'll happen is it may just get tougher and tougher to discern who's engaging with you on the other end. But I think we live in a digital world. It's only increasing and fraud's not going to decline. Yeah, and then various forms as well. I mean, you have ChatGPT and then you have AI in video and visual as well. And now the other day I was watching a video where you can replicate someone's voice, anyone's voice basically, by using text to audio. And you don't even know whether it's that genuine or not. And it's so real. That's scary. I mean, in the sense people can then be put in positions that were just not them. And the implications of that are difficult. So I guess back to to C2Ps. As you know, this year is our 20th year anniversary. And in honor of that, could you share any stories about 2C2P or any anecdote or advice you've received 20 years ago? We'd love to hear from you. Well, first of all, I have to tell you how I met Ong. And I have to say up front, I couldn't be more proud to have backed him and supported him over the years. We were looking at a different company in Thailand at the time. And uh, we realized that TCDP was processing their payments. And I reached out to Ong on LinkedIn and said, hey, I'd be really interested in meeting. You have a very interesting company that I'd be happy to come down and see you. And he said, okay, I'm available on Sunday. And I got on a plane and I flew to Bangkok and met him. And then I spent the next year, well, I should say Ong spent the next year getting to know me, trying to decide whether, you know, we would be a good fit as an investor. And then we invested. And I would say I have nothing but most respect for Ong and what he's built. The reasons why is because he really understands very deeply the payment network in Southeast Asia. And he understands the difference between what exists and what's possible, number one. Number two is he had a lot of vision in building next generation products. And then, you know, finally being able to build a team, and I would call a sustainable team over the years. And building a company profitably without having to raise exorbitant amounts of money. And so I always use him as the best example one could have of somebody with grit, perseverance, focus, dedication, commitment to his team. Ong is a poster child for that. Is there any particular incident or I guess meaningful story or experience from your years of interaction with 2CDP and Ong that you can share? With Ong, one of the, the lessons that I learned from him was patience, really understanding the region, how complex the region is to go from country to country. It's not easy, right? So companies that would say they were going to scale very quickly across the region, I learned very quickly from all that's not possible. It's very complex to scale across the region. And he did so remarkably. I learned a lot about Thailand and Myanmar and also Indonesia. And so I hope he learned as much from me as I learned from him over the years. But I would say he's one entrepreneur, one CEO in our portfolio, I always enjoy interacting with and and sitting down to have a meal with. I consider him a friend at this point in time, like, uh, you know, a good friend. With that, I think, Melissa, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your stories and your insights as well. Thank you so much for coming to the show. Thank you so much and congratulations to the entire team. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, Subscribe or follow this show. You can also find 2C2P on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. To read more about this conversation, go to 2C2P.com slash blog.